reading from Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake, where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had not gotten better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and she touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. And together we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Anna Rose, thanks for that. Just before we come to the Word of God, um, I just want to say how much it means to me personally to be here with you this morning um, and to have um, the partnership that we do between um, us in Tikanga Māori in the, in the Māori Anglican churches and, and with you here at St. Augustine's. Um, and especially to acknowledge Newt and for the, the, um, the sense of um, being brothers, actually, on the same journey here. Um, and, and to say that we're actually walking in the same direction um, to seek the extension of God's kingdom, to feel like 
Some, you know, sometimes it feels like a lonely old business, and it's really nice to feel that there's somebody else um, on the boat as well. And so, um, particularly through Newt, but also through all of you here, I really want to acknowledge that and to say how much it means to me, and to bring you greetings from uh, my bishop, Tekitohi Pakahu, um, who's over at Holy Sepai. I, I sort of abandoned him today to come over here. Um, and so, I, I hope you appreciate that, by the way. You outrank not just one, but two bishops this morning. So... Um, that's it's at least some indication of the fact that um, we so greatly appreciate this. Um, as we come to God's words, let's begin in prayer. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Well, I want to begin just by telling you a little bit of a story of um, my own iwi. Uh, this is uh, Ngai Tahu. Um, I come from Kaikoura, and um, that's part of that wider group of hapu and iwi that makes up Ngai Tahu. And in the history of Ngai Tahu, of course, um, if you go back, you'll find that there's not a great story during the colonial period. As is common everywhere you go, I don't think this will come as breaking news, but it's not just Ihumatau uh, where there's a difficult story and a painful one in the past, but all across the land. And so um, amongst Ngaitahu, the way this is often referred to, that, that sad story and its effects, is te mate o te iwi. Mate can mean death, but it can also mean the, the malaise or the sickness or the illness. The te mate o te iwi, the terrible stuff that's happened to the iwi and which has then uh, left effects, scarring, pain, death even. And when you hear that story told, when we hear truth-telling, I think one of the things that sometimes is very difficult for us to figure out and where within our nation and within the national story, a story is being told that I think lacks truth actually, it's very difficult to see when you hear that story of pain and grief and sadness, that truth-telling being told. It's very hard to see why my tūpuna turned to Christianity, because very often the way the story is told, Christianity is an intrinsic part of te mate o te iwi, the death of our tribe. Very often it's told as if Christianity is in fact to blame for te mate o te iwi, Sometimes I feel that this story is simply a bit simplistic. We're all looking for a simple story, right? And so sometimes it's about, hey, a bunch of stuff happened, all happened around the same time. The Christian message arrived. So did certain people like Governor Gray, who I certainly don't like very much. And they all came together, and it's all pretty much the same thing. So Christianity, colonization, it's all part of the same thing. And that is a simple story. And so because of that, it has some power to it. The only problem is, Life is more complex than that. And that simple story, I don't think, is a true one. The other thing is, I find that simple story a little bit patronizing to my tūpuna. What it says is, they were a bit too dumb to disentangle colonization and Christianity. Because it all came at about the same time and certainly came wearing the same kinds of clothes, perhaps. Came spoken in, to some degree, the same language. That those... My tūpuna were incapable of disentangling these different things that were going on. But when I hear that, I think, well, actually, the people who brought that message to um, Kaikoura, actually, the, the guy who did that was a Māori. 
a guy called Horhepper. He was Catholic, hadn't quite encountered the Reformation yet, um, but, you know, pretty close to Anglican. Eventually, my family became Anglican, which was all good. Um, but it was a Maori who brought that message down there. Now, I don't think we can say that Horhepper, as he came down there, was simply an agent of colonization. Colonization wearing Maori clothes and in a Maori body. And so I think we have to look a little bit deeper to understand this. We could look back to some of those stories, like the story of, in the far north, a man called Papa Hurihia. We went under a whole bunch of different names over, over the course of his life. Papa Hurihia was one of the first of um, the leaders of the Maori prophetic movements. So he really established in the 1830s his own uh, religious setup. And um, he, as part of that, engaged in a vigorous debate with Christianity. So one example was that in 1835, at a place called Weimar, he held a debate with the Wesleyan missionary, William White, and somewhere between three and 4,000 Maori attended that debate. They were engaged carefully and thoughtfully in a discussion as to whether the message of Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ, actually made sense. And at that point, Papa Hurihia felt it really didn't. And he was putting forward his own religious way of life and so forth to try and speak into that. The world that he was encountering, against colonization, by the way, which he was very clear, wasn't exactly the same as William White and his message of the gospel. Now, Papa Hurihia eventually converted to Christianity in 1856 and changed his name to Penitana, which is the, the loan word for penitence. In other words, he changed his name to reflect his change of heart. I don't think anyone can accuse him of being simplistic, dumb, or foolish in his engagement with that message. And so I think we have to look deeper. By the way, his direct descendant, and in many ways the inheritor of his mantle as um, the spiritual leader up there, um, is a guy called Katene Eruera. Katene is the principal now of St. John's College. Um, and he can't talk about this whole ancestry back to Papa Huri here, but that's who he is. So I'm telling you that this morning, even though he can't. Here's the thing. My tūpuna, all of our tūpuna who were in, involved in Tao Māori, who were immersed in that world, before the arrival of the gospel, saw things in the spiritual reality of the world that were true, at least in part. They saw things not only that were true, but figured out ways of engaging with that spiritual world that worked. You know, I'm looking around the room, most people here are Pākehā Kiwis, okay? We were very well known as, so I'm, I'm more Pākehā than Māori, by the way, if you look at that sort of composition. Pākehā are known for being very pragmatic, okay? Don't want to know anything about ideas or any of that kind of stuff. We can figure things out ourselves and we'll do what works best. Well, there was something about that in our tūpuna's engagement with the spiritual reality of the world. They did what worked. So those old karakia, that old recognition of a spiritual reality that lies behind the veil of this world, the material substances that we can see and touch, those, that perception, I think, was true to some degree. That sort of figuring out of how to make things work in that environment was true and worked and was functional. But I have to say, the thing was, it was not safe. It was not good. It was not benevolent. And so our tūpuna, as they encountered this, were in a world that was always a risky place, always a place that was unsafe. Bishop Tekitohi has said to me, with the old karakia, 
You could pray them and they would work, but there would always be a price to pay, very often the life of one of your children, or perhaps your mental well-being in a way that then would be passed down through the generations. There's a power that was real, but that power came at a cost. There are a couple of African um, theologians who I think speak really well into this, um, Lamine Sane and Kwame Bdainko, and, and they talk about the fact that the world of um, indigenous Africans actually bears much more similarity to the world of Europeans for most of European history. And to me, it speaks much more of the world that my ancestors lived in and that many Māori today are looking to recover. It's a world in which there's an acknowledgement of spiritual reality, but there's no safe way to engage in it. And it's into that context that the message of the gospel came to my ancestors and said, here is a way of reaching through the veil. Here's a way of engaging that brings benevolence, kindness, goodness, and that offers you complete safety. That in one sense, if you look at the story of the gospel, yes, there is a price to be paid, a price that we remember in a minute, but somebody else paid that price to bring me safety, rescue, and healing. That's the story of the gospel that my ancestors encountered. And you know, when they saw it, they said, this is te rongopai. This is the good news that gives me a place of rescue. Now, in the reading that we've just heard, I wonder if you can start to see how what we've just heard from Mark chapter 5 might speak into that kind of world. A world in which you understand that the material things that we encounter, the material suffering, can be dealt with not only through public policy and our hopes in the government, not only through progress and engineering and so forth, but that those marrings of the world that we know ought to exist can be healed by reaching out beyond ourselves. And here, our ancestors encountered that those things could be healed. Life could be given again by the one whom our Father sent into the world. The name saviour in Māori is kai whakaora, the person who gives life. And that message is one that I think found an amazing resonance in, amongst um, our people. Now, when we look at this passage, there's a beautiful storytelling to it. Mona Hooker, um, who's got this amazing commentary on the Gospel of Mark, points out a bunch of these things. The woman had been uh, dealing with this hidden sickness for 12 years. The little girl who died was 12 years old, and there's this symmetry to the way this story happens. Both of them in a Jewish setting are ritually unclean, the woman because of her bleeding, the child because of death. In both cases, you might again see a resonance in the Maori world around issues of um, tapu and noa. Um, actually, the, the translators of the scriptures picked up that word tapu and then looked for other words around clean and other, unclean. But there's a, a similarity in the thought world that, that Mark is speaking into here with this gospel. There are insiders and outsiders here. The woman is a Gentile. She's not part of God's people. The synagogue ruler, though, and his little girl are the insiders of the insiders, I mean, they, they represent the spiritual establishment. There's a contrast. The woman is the one who makes her way, even though she's the outsider. She makes her way to Jesus and reaches out to touch him. Jesus, though, goes to the synagogue ruler's house to raise that, that little girl from the dead. And yet within all of these contrasts and differences, 
there is a commonality here around the life-giving power of Jesus, the way he takes te mate o ngā tāngata, the death, the malaise of people, and gives te ora, life to them. That's the pattern that's played out through here in this story. And in that, the thread that unites the two things together, the two stories together, is the faith, the whakapono, of both the woman and the synagogue ruler. You see that in verse 34, um, where Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, your suffering is over. And Jesus, when he speaks to the synagogue ruler, where well, he's speaking to the people who are, who, is, who are trying to persuade the synagogue ruler to abandon hope in Jesus, and Jesus says to them, don't be afraid, just have faith to Jairus. Those two things, that, that ability just to express a belief in Jesus, to say in the power of his name, there is the possibility of escape from the way that the world has been marred and wounded by evil, is the message that my tupuna encountered. Actually, both in England, where uh, in Ireland, one of my ancestors was an Irish convict um, who uh, was sent to Australia and quite sensibly thought that was a rubbish place to live and came to New Zealand instead. Uh, so I've, I've got ancestry back all over the place. Ireland was another place that was a mission field at one stage and where the gospel came to a bunch of real pagans. The, this message spread all over the world because everywhere we look, Everywhere where there's the perception to see that there's some spiritual reality beyond the veil of this world, we need to find a way to encounter safety and security and to find healing and life-giving power. And my ancestors here in Aotearoa found that healing, that life-giving power, that safety and security in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's the same name that we're called to proclaim today. But here's the thing. How on earth can we do that? How can we be part of that story of bringing life, bringing healing power to Aotearoa when, as we look around, to be honest, there's so much that we can see that's broken? It's really, really struck. It's not that long ago we just had the anniversary of the, um, the mosque shootings. I'll never forget hearing our Prime Minister say, this is not us. And thinking at the time, you know what? That's the fake news that we, as New Zealanders, like to tell ourselves. You know, we go and say, we're God's own country, we're the best place in the world, and we say that we've, unlike the Australians, they're the real racists, happy days that we're not over here, like we've got no sort of structural problem um, in this country. But unfortunately, it's not really true. Now, my wife is English properly. She's blonde-haired and blue-eyed. So are two of my boys. Only one's a little bit brown like me. And, um, but as an outsider coming in, one of the striking things that she said to me after we'd been here for a while is that New Zealand is made up of two different worlds. And most people in New Zealand have only ever even seen, only even know about one of those worlds. And that's really, we're talking about the Pākehā world. But there's another whole world, another way of life, another way of living. You know, uh, Newt talks about that this is a little bit the pirate ship here. And um, Pākehā culture is one that's immensely egalitarian. We're all on the same level. And in, in Māori settings, that's not actually true. It's not the normal way of doing things. There's a hierarchy and so forth. There's a very different way of being. And so these two different worlds that we live in sometimes make it seem like perhaps it's impossible and there's no hope to bring real healing, to bring real unity. We're starting from such different ideas about what would be 
a good outcome for this nation? Is there any hope or any possibility? And even when we do tell good stories about the country, the Prime Minister says, unemployment's down. The problem is, Maori unemployment is up. And you say, sort of think, well, can we even actually say what's happening here? And I want to encourage you this morning that just as it was for my tūpuna, so it is today, that the way that we can bring genuine hope of restoration, of healing, of life-giving action in our country is through the message of the gospel. In fact, it's the only way we can avoid being consumed as Maori by bitterness over what has happened and the effects that it still has in the present day. Can't tell the story of colonization without telling the story of hope of reconciliation that's found through Jesus Christ. In my view, unless you're going to just simply give in to despair and bitterness. Because to be honest, when I look around our country, I cannot see how we can fix the unfixable problems that are there. The only reason I have hope at all is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the same is true in the church. So in the Anglican world, we have this three tikanga system. All right, we have tikanga pākehā. That's where all the money is. (laughs) Tikanga Māori. That's where um, we get to do what we want a little bit more because nobody can criticize us in case they look racist. <laughs> and then there's Tekanga Pacifica, all right, who actually are the real poor relations. Do you know a, a stipendary minister out in the island, so that's somebody who's paid for ministry, it exists on $200 per month. All right? So... Anyway, when you hear my, my uh, colleagues in Tikanga Māori talk about how poor, how poor we are, it's kind of true, but it's, it's nothing compared to them. Now, what that structure did is at least, unlike all the other mainstream um, church movements, it means there's Māori leadership. So I have a, you know, we love our grand Anglican titles, I'm the Archdeacon of Tāmaki. Now, up until, up until then, you know, you, you might not have had my bishop, Te Kitohi Pekahi. Do you know the first uh, Māori bishop wasn't even allowed to come into Auckland? So there was this, um, the Bishop of Auckland banned him from coming up. Now, three tikanga helped to shift the picture on that so that there's Maori leadership. But I have to say, it's a theological vision. Actually, there's no theology to the vision of it. Because you look at the story that's there. We we know the great thing is Christians, right? We know how the story's going to end. It's there in Revelation. People of what? Every tribe, language, and nation will be worshipping together. So I don't really think that the thing we should be shooting for is that yeah, quite a few different tribes and nations are all worshipping separately. But at least it solved something. It meant that there was a possibility for Maori leadership to be, to be re-envisaged. But, you know, there's still a way of breaking down something further. And, and, and part of that has to do with a question of trust. I was on a plane the other day. You know, I'm not the brownest Maori ever, Right? I was on a plane, and I was sitting next to this guy, and I'd got my headphones out already, which are my big way of signaling, I have no interest in talking to you when you're sitting next to me. <laughs> and um, despite this, the guy next to me decided to strike up conversation. And um, he, he, he noticed that I was a little bit brown anyway. He goes, are you Maori? And I said, yes. He proceeded to spend quite a bit of time telling me um, about the fact that Maori, the real reason why Maori have trouble in society is because we're not really capable of higher education. Now, this would have been news to my children, who are slightly shocked by just how many years I've spent stuck still at university. <laughs> or, or maybe the guy was right, actually, and I've never managed to get out of it and, and finally graduate. But, you know, I felt it wasn't so much the guy said it, but that he felt this was something he could say without shame. And 
actually, when you speak to people, especially ones who are darker than me, you'll find this is their normal experience in, in New Zealand life. There's something deeply, deeply broken, and it is a little bit, I think, reflected in the church. But what's the solution to it? What's the way that we can take some step forward? Well, first of all, I just want you to retain hope. In Ephesians, Paul says, Christ died for the church. And therefore, if that's for whom Christ died, then we ought to continue to love the church despite its many, many flaws. I remember recently I was out biking near my home. I was biking around um, the land near Ihumatau, um, thinking a bit about that. I have to say I was feeling a bit depressed about the church that day, um, which is partly why I was on my bike instead of in my office. And um, I just had this overwhelming sense of God's love for this land and God's continuing commitment to the church here. And so even if you remember nothing else, I just want you to know that as part of the church, God has this love. This is the vessel through whom his life-giving, healing, resurrection power is going to be made known. And to hold on to confidence in that, despite perhaps all the evidence you might see around you. The other thing, though, is I want to suggest some real practical ways you can engage. It's so good to see you here, Anna Rose. Um, and the work that you're, or oh, both your brothers actually, but um, is it just the three of you? Six. Oh, okay. I don't know the rest of them anyway. But I know two of her brothers and what they're doing. One of them, Sam Carpenter, runs Karufa. Karufa means four eyes, and it's what um, Maori often called Henry Williams because he had glasses on. So uh, maybe you're a new Karufa. And um, one thing you could do is just get to know the story. It's good to know the true story of how the gospel came here, how it influenced things, and how that's mixed up in some of the pain that goes on. So Karufa, especially around Waitangi Day, is the best time to do it. Go on that hikoi up to Waitangi. You know, you only see on the news when bad stuff happens there. Um, and you've probably also seen in the news there's all the stuff about parliamentary prayer going away. I don't know if you know, there's only two official events happen on Waitangi Day. Right? They're both run by Bishop Tekitohi, and they're both... Christian services, right? That's, that's the one place where you can't argue with the heritage that we have here, or at least as long as Bishop Kittle is still running things, I'm pretty sure that's what the only things that will happen on Waitangi Day. Why not go along and see that and be part of knowing the story up there? Another thing I want to encourage you towards is to find a way, and I think I said this last time I was here, Ryan Cook's um, lovely phrase of be an echo before you try to be a voice. And so in other words, find ways of engaging, as you have done so wonderfully here, with what is going on within the Maori church, which has this unbroken connection with the gospel story, the first arrival, long before the treaty, by the way, so we always look back to 1814 when the gospel first arrived, rather than just to the treaty. And we say there's an unbroken chain there of faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And you can join in with that unbroken chain. And, but it requires a little bit of a different pattern of behavior. It's to say, how can you echo that story? Like up in Waitangi, up in Paihia, there's a guy there who bears the name Wiramu. He's the great-grandson of another guy who took the name Wiramu, who was Henry Williams' protector when he moved inland to Pākaraka. And that first Wiramu named his son Wiramu and said, you must look after Karufa's legacy. And so on and so forth, down to the guy now, um, Wiramu Tane, who still holds that belief that his, really his calling in life is to protect that legacy of Henry Williams and the gospel that came here. That's a pretty cool story to join in with, but it does require a posture which says you're looking to join in with that unbroken story 
rather than simply to tell your own story here. And I know that's something that you've pushed into loads. Another aspect of that is to entrust leadership to those who are part of that. And this is really about a way of retelling what went wrong, retelling the brokenness of the story. So when Selwyn arrived, he did some good stuff, probably also messed up a little bit, and then he created a parallel church structure. This is really the the starting point of there being a Pākehā and a Māori church, where um, things actually got divvied up. And in the end, all of the, all of the mana and all of the control ended up being in the hands of Pākehā. And so this is a plea to entrust to those who are Māori positions of leadership in relation to how the gospel can be re-proclaimed. And, I mean, the fact is, you guys run church way better here than we do. We have nothing to offer you in terms of how to do things better. But I think there is something in the gospel story of entrusting leadership to those who seem unqualified in the world's eyes because there's something about the way that God is telling the story that means that we show God's power more clearly. This is the kind of language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. God's power is more clearly seen when there's a trusting to those who probably don't look like they fit the picture. And then the the last thing that I want to pick up on is I've started using the language of a korowai Māori for the church. Now, the church is under attack in this land, and I don't mean in the sort of cultural wars sense. I just mean we're kind of losing the battle, if you hadn't noticed. Now, it's easy here. It's great, right? There's a growing, flourishing church. But what I mean is when you take a step back and you look in aggregate, the church is still shrinking. We're, We're not just shrinking proportionally. We're shrinking in absolute numbers every year. We're not winning people to Christ at the same rate as people are turning away from Him. Now, that is not a message of despair, but it is a message of reality. One of the few avenues we have within our cultural moment in this land, one of the few ways in which we can engage with wider society where there's a protection cast over the gospel message is by doing it under the korowai, under the mantle of those who are Māori and who are committed to the orthodox Christian faith. Because we're not subject to critique, to exclusion, to criticism in quite the same way. Now, I'll tell you, there's a massive fight going on in the Māori world as well over where people like me sit in that space as well. Even amongst Māori Christians, there's this whole other battleground. But at the same time, I can go to public events and I can lead Christian worship. I mentioned before what happens at Waitangi. There's a reason why that korowai Māori that Bishop Kittle provides enables the gospel to go out in a way that would otherwise be impossible in our culture, that you can buy into. But it requires a degree of surrender. It says, you know, and I'm not asking you here to do anything different from what I've done myself. I've placed myself very deliberately under Bishop Kittle to say I give up some of my own way of doing things because I want to be part of that story. I want to be under his leadership, and I want to follow in that. Now, what that looks like, what that korowai Māori looks like in different places is going to be different things. But it will always involve some degree of of surrender of things that are dear in order to then be in a place where the gospel can be proclaimed um, and bring transformation. All of that, I think, involves also a whole outworking of how we do this in the social space. All of that, I'm not trying to deny the complexity of it. 
But at the same time, there are some things here that can take us in that direction. I was told of a guy called Tefiti. Most of you have heard the story of Parihaka and of the invasion that happened there. So Tefiti was one of the leaders there. And he was one of these people who was, I guess, forced in some way to, to push into why was he Christian despite what was going on. And he said, e he uri no hohepa no ngā tupuna. What that means is, it's impossible for me to separate my descent from Joseph and from my ancestors. Now, he meant some specific things there about his ideas around where Māori came from as a race. But to the person who related to me, who's a descendant of Tefiti, what she means is that now that our tupuna made that choice of whether they were going to situate themselves under the name of Jesus Christ, under his protection, there is no way for us who are the descendants to ever separate ourselves from that story. And there's a bedrock there that means that by buying into that amongst the people you see holding fast to that, that you then have a place of security as a church and in the proclamation of the gospel, just as my ancestors found security and safety in the name and healing power of Jesus Christ. In human terms, the recovery of the church is kind of impossible. We're already off the edge of the cliff. But Jesus in this story here in Mark 5 tells us that he has a mana. In the, in the Maori translation, that's what it says. When he engages the woman, with the woman, he felt the mana go out from him. He has the mana, the power that transcends the limits of our human imagination around how the gospel can redeem our nation. Above the ability of people to achieve something. He can heal the secret sicknesses of the church, the ways in which our church, our Anglican church, has been corrupted by money and power. Jesus can heal that. I have confidence in that. He's the one who can engage with the power brokers of the religious institution of his day. He can still do it with the power brokers of our own religious institution now. And Jesus is the one in Mark 5 who raises this dead girl to life as a foretaste of the resurrection power he promises to give at his return. And so if we believe that that's the end of the story, we can believe that the same can happen today in our church might look a little bit like it's on his last legs from a human point of view. But the hope that Jesus gives here in this is that he can raise the dead to life. And in fact, that's the work he loves to do. Only those who have been healed themselves, only those who have encountered that resurrection power themselves can really understand this story. But when we do, we find the hope that Christ still heals the sick and still raises the dead. And I mean that for you personally, but I also mean that for us collectively as a church. Jesus is still the one who heals the sick church. He's still the one who raises the dead church to new life, and that's my hope for the church in Aotearoa. Let's pray. O God of steadfast love, who created us for an eternal destiny, you have shown your power to heal and give life through the hand of Christ, your chosen one. We ask you now to raise up what is dead, and heal what is sick in the life of your church, so that all in this land may live in the joy and praise for which you made us. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.